0: Well, so far beginning this little letter in Philippians, just to remind you of the quick review, we've seen the imprisoned, the Paul in jail, write with joy. From a position of imprisonment, he's writing this affectionate letter, often called a joyful letter, to this group of believers in an area called Philippi. We looked last week in some detail at what he's thankful for, and we've talked about at some length, Philippians 1 verse 6, what it does and doesn't mean. That verse is often used, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, being a sanctification verse. He's going to help you grow and mature in faith. While the theology of that statement is true, the verse is taken out of context and misapplied. The verse is about their financial support. The verse is about their participation in partaking in the work of the gospel. And we'll see that again today, and we saw it in chapter 4, verse 15, last time as well. So he's in jail. He's joyfully writing them. Why? Because after Macedonia, there was only one church that stepped up and helped out. And that was the church in Philippi. To put it real simply, nobody else helped me but you. And every time I think of you, even though I'm in jail, it brings a smile to my face. That'd be a terrible paraphrase, but that's what's going on. I look at the Philippian believers, not as a joyful book necessarily, because he's in jail. What he is saying is you should have joy no matter your circumstance. He is saying you should be joyful no matter what, and that's what he's conveying in his personal life to the Philippian believers, and what God, through his Son and Holy Spirit, is trying to teach you and me today. In our circumstance, in our situation, no matter if we're in jail or not, we can have joy looking at what Christ is doing through the gospel. Let's take a look, we're just looking at two verses today. I'll read the verse, and then we'll talk about three quick points. Number one, uh, chapter one, verses seven and eight, Paul writes, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So again, he's explaining this attitude of joy He's in prison, he's in jail, and he's writing to them. And in these two little verses, the reason I wanted to take them slowly, there's so much going on in here that's easy to miss. And I wanna spend a little time. Uh, one commentator named Hansen writes, this is more than a sentimental feeling. It's not just an opening salutation. Every time I think about you, you make me smile. That's true on the surface, but there's much more going on in these two verses than at first meets the eye. The ESV here uh, does an interesting job with one word that I tend to prefer. Um, NASB says, I have you in my heart. ESV says, I hold you in my heart. And because we're going to talk a bit about what the heart is and is not in this section, I, I like that imagery better. I have you in my heart. It, kinda, it, it means it's sort of mushy and, and nice and fluffy. doesn't have much substance to it. Holding is a little more helpful for me in my English brain and maybe it will be for you too. I hold you in my heart. Let's look first of all at Paul's affection. At Paul's affection because of their partnership, because of their faithfulness, he has this affection and he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. We need to talk a moment about feelings and heart in the first century. For the Greek, and we're gonna look at the word "cardia" in a moment, for the Greek, uh, this idea of heart is a little different than the Western way we think about feelings. In the first century, the, let's just call it the visceral part of man, was the center of man for the Greek. His heart is how he led, how he felt, how he experienced life. The Semitics, the, the Hebrew, the Old Testament saints, were a little more head. I don't want to simplify it, oversimplify it, as it said head versus heart, but it's that's not, that's not terribly wrong. But they were more thinking critically and, and the idea of the soul, the nephesh, through the neck. So their view was more up here. The Greek was more up down here. And I just point that out because when we use words like love and affection, they mean certain things to us. They're sort of remotely comparable to the Bible, but not really. And that's why I want to labor a little bit with this passage. He uses the word feel here, and it's the word in Greek. I don't like to do this to you. I'll tell you a little bit more why in a moment. But it's the word phroneo. And the word freneo can mean an opinion or a judgment or a lot of things. Remember we talked about peanut a couple weeks ago? That usage determines meaning? Well, Paul's going to use this word freneo in a number of ways. And I want you to pencil in your Bible or in your notes the word mindset. I think that's a better English idea of what we think about. When we read that word, uh, right for me to feel this way, we think of a lot of things. I want you to think about the mindset that Paul has. This is the mindset he has when he thinks about the Philippian believer. This is from jail to joy. This is how he thinks about it. Um, the apostle had thoughts and feelings that were joyful, but it wasn't like you and I, I, I think about my friend, I, I'm all happy and warm. That's, that's okay, but it's not enough. It's, that's more sentimentality. Um, interesting, you're, there's some dog lovers in this room. And there's some people that love those other evil things. (laughs) By the way, if you own a cat, if you own a cat, there's only one name you should ever give a cat, and that's the name Jezebel. That's the only time, (laughs) but be that as it may. Um, I I got sucked into something. I'm embarrassed to tell you the story, but it's true, and I'll share it. So people send me junk like they send you, and it was about this guy that adopted nine dogs. And uh, what is it about puppies that make us ooh and ah? If kittens do that, I know a counselor here in the church, but but when you see a puppy, you kind of ooh and ah, right? And you, oh, oh, so sweet. And this story, it was 29 minutes of my life. I wasted. I'll never get back. I watched this stupid video of this guy that adopted nine dogs. Now, imagine his house. It was a a local news channel that took interest in some shelter. They go, oh, this is great. So they spend all this time and money filming it you imagine what his house looked like with all these beds and nine, and these were, some of them were huge dogs. So what was it? It was all dog hair, right? He's got this big van and they all run in the van and he has names for all of them. They're like a pack, they are a pack. And, and, he, and they're all over the van. You know what the bottom of the floor of that van looked like? I don't need to explain it to you. You got a picture, right? This is when I'm glad that computers have not yet put olfactory sensors in the, in the monitor where you smell what you're looking at because it would probably smell like a bunch of wet dogs. And he goes all around the country and long story short, uh, the crescendo of it was taking this dog back to a shelter that he'd rescued that had lost 57 pounds and he nursed it back to health and how they loved and they slept together and all these cutesy pictures. And, And then he told the story at the end. I said, why do you do this? And he goes, well, when I was a kid, I was bullied terribly, made fun of, no friends, broken family, and I got a dog. Now, that's the guy you'd like to get on and have a coffee with and talk about how Jesus Christ loves him more than the dog. But anyway, that's his family. And I saw that, and I'm reading this passage this past week, thinking about this mindset about what we hold in our hearts. And there's probably not many people that don't ooh and ah when they hold a puppy. There's probably not many people that they see a little cute thing on Instagram of puppies being silly, don't smile how much more a person who needs to know Christ or a believer in Christ? Our love and affection for the body of Christ should transcend anything else on the planet. But we're friends, right? That's not always the case. Sometimes we don't like or love each other. And Paul is saying something, oh, by the way here, I hold you in my heart. I'm in jail, but when I think back on my life and ministry, and his life was all ministry, it wasn't hobbies, he's saying, I hold you in my heart. Um, If you have your first son or daughter, that child is born and they immediately steal your heart. If you have your first grandson or daughter, that child reaches in, pulls your heart, your lungs, your kidneys all out, They 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 own you, right? And I remember a friend of mine, in uh, another part, another part of the country, and we were bragging stories about our grandchildren, and he said he has his first granddaughter who was two and a half at the time memory serves, and she was coloring a picture, sitting in his lap coloring a picture, which is always fun coloring a picture with your two, three-year-old grandchildren because they don't make really color pictures; they just on every page. And when you start coloring something really cool, they're done with that man; you're you're, you're toast. Which is fine; they're your grandchildren. And so he's, you know, she's coloring a picture. And she puts her crayon down, turns around his lap, puts both her little two-year-old hands on the sides of his cheeks, gives him a big kiss on the mouth, and says, I love you, Grandpa. And he relates the story to me, and he said, and at that point I said, Honey, when you turn 16, what kind of car would you like? (laughs) Oh, that we could transfer that emotion to the body of Christ that we could look the way Paul looks at the body of Christ, a lot of us have problems. A lot of us are not the easiest people to love. A lot of us are problematic and say, I hold you in my heart. That's what the apostle is saying. Now, this word for neo is used 10 times in this little letter to the Philippians. The verses are on screen for those of you that care to look at them. When you teach the Bible, when you explain the Bible, there is a bell curve. And any good professor, Sunday school teacher, community group leader should know this simple rule of thumb. There are people that know more than you and people that don't know Philippians from Philadelphia. (laughs) And all across that bell curve. You can teach to the lowest common denominator, but if you do that, you insult everybody else. If you teach to the people that know as much or more than you, you're condescending and you're overlooking other people. The goal of teaching the Bible, in my view, is to teach people biblical theology so that you will grow. So the stories, the illustrations, the side points, oh by the way points, are not oh by the way points. They're intentional to help people say, oh, where am I? Am I growing? Am I learning? For a lot of you, men and women, and those who are watching, you're mature you're mature, you probably wouldn't park here. And you're, you want to grow more. So when I use Greek terms or talk about theology in some depth like last week, my intent isn't to show off or bore you. My intent is to help you grow. And I maintain we're in a biblically illiterate time unlike anything in America's history. So that's what we're doing here. If you don't like it, there's plenty of places to go shop. But that's what we're trying to do here. So I will do this to Philippians. I will take some time to show you some things that I really, truly, 100% believe you're going to go, wow, that's so cool. I need to study more. That's the objective. I need to read more, not just to learn, but to have the knowledge of grace and truth and to grow in Christ. Okay, that's my soapbox. Come back to the text. Ten times he uses this. He can use it in a good way or a bad way. And that's something you'll look in the context of each of those uses. A simple way of thinking of this mindset term, for Neo is the way one thinks is the way one behaves. That's, a very, that's the lower shelf. The way one thinks is the way one behaves. That's not original for me. I took it from the following uh, commentary that I want to read part of. It's uh, Peter O'Brien, Thomas O'Brien wrote the commentary. He's citing someone else named, um, named Gutzman or Gertzman. He writes, the references of Paul, especially in Romans 8, make it abundantly clear that the, one, the way one thinks is intimately related to the way one behaves. The way one thinks is intimately related to the way one behaves. A person's thinking and striving cannot be seen in isolation from the overall direction of his or her life. For expresses not merely an activity of the intellect, but a movement of the will. It is both interest and decision at the same time. Let me read this again. A person's thinking and striving cannot be seen in isolation from the overall direction of his or her life. And this is what I think is lost on modern Christianity because we've become a feeling-driven, feeling-motivated culture. We've been frogs in the kettle. It's how I feel about something. I was talking to, is years ago, not that long ago, a few years ago, uh, we we were dealing with a a difficult situation, and the person was, quote, triggered and said to us, I don't feel safe in this conversation. Now, there's there's a lot of nomenclature in our culture that's become, and this is why the Bible is so important to study it carefully. What the word means is very important, because word meaning today is what's got us in a lot of messes. So this is a wonderful thing about the Bible. Because you can stake your soul on it. You can stake your life on it. You can stake your trust in Christ on it. And this person was triggered and they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel safe because they were getting an evaluation. And I thought, you know, if I was in this situation there, I wouldn't necessarily like what they were telling me, but I would want to learn. If someone's telling me, you know, you need to prove in this area or, or change here, you want to learn, you want to be teachable. But the problem is... We get this mixed up. The way one thinks is the way one behaves. We think the way we feel is the way we wanna live. And this gets us into a lot of trouble. Um, years ago, I was attending a conference, a world renowned psychiatrist, Christian medical doctor, teach him PhDs, books, tapes, you know, conferences, the whole nine yards, a trusted guy. And he was giving a keynote at this conference. It was a week long thing for pastors. And, I'll never forget, he, he stood up there, very self-deprecating, and he told a story about working with people and all these books and all these tapes, and he said, can I just, and I'm paraphrasing, this is a long time ago, but essentially he said, I give the books and the tapes and seminars and travel, and I'm on the radio and all that. He goes, I, let me give you just one simple piece of advice. Most of us who struggle with depression, or being a victim, or hurt, or wounded, or whatever the story may be, if you would do one thing, if every day you would do something for somebody else, you would probably get better. If every day you got up and said, how can I help or serve somebody else? No strings attached. I can go do something. Why? Because you're getting out of your introspecting. You're getting out of your microcosm. COVID has left us in an introspective, self-absorbed world. And we have to get out of it and say, there's a lot more important things than how I, me, my. You've heard me wax on this many times. The you, the, thou, Christianity Shifted to an I mean my Christianity. He is not your puppet. He's not your genie in a lamp. He's not there to simply dispense your wants. He's there for your worship. He's there for your obedience. He's there for your allegiance. He's there for your faithfulness. And he cares about you. He cares about you more than you know. But we've flipped the caring about more than I understand to give me, give me, give me, give me. We're kind of toddlers in some respect when it comes to our Christianity. Not all of us, but our culture has gone this way. Well, let's quickly on Paul's affection. He he uses this word, it's right for me to feel this way about you, which is striking. Because what he's saying is, you're growing, you're giving, I'm in jail, I'm joyful when I think about you, and it's right for me to think that way. Because you're partakers is the key word you're partakers of grace. That word may come as a surprise to you, maybe not, is the same word we talked about last time when they participated in the gospel. This word is the same word fellowship. Our English translations do this to make it easy to read, but they took the word cornania and they put a word in front of it, and most of our Bibles translate it partakers or uh, participators, something like that. You're participators with this. Well, think about it. If you are a partaker, if you have fellowship with them, we talked about the brotherhoods, police unions, pilots associations, teachers groups, right? There's, there's a camaraderie there. That's a good way of thinking of fellowship. And Paul's saying, you're having a fellowship with grace with me, because you're giving, you're growing, you're participating in grace. So when I think about you, it's right that I have this mindset toward you. Let's continue briefly, Paul's imprisonment uh, It's a fellowship that's connected with two phrases in your English Bible, in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Imprisonment is simply a word that means bond. My defense of the gospel is where we get the word apologetics. Defense is the apologia, not apologizing, but defense, the ability to defend what you believe. And so he's saying, part of the reason I'm so connected to you, this fellowship, this partakers of grace, is because you, A, while I was in prison, were with me, and B, you're apologetic, you're defending the gospel that I'm defending. So he's alone, he's in a prison, not literally alone, but he's by himself from his friends, he's under guard, not, it's, as I said before, it's not as bad as a dungeon, but not as nice as house arrest. And he's waiting a trial. So his life is truly on the line, he doesn't know if martyrdom awaits, he doesn't know if he's gonna die for what he's done. He says, when I think of the Philippians, There's a theological, biblical mindset. There's an alliance. And I love them. I love them. Might we put it this way? We're on the same page. I'm in prison, but you're on the same page. And you're about the gospel, and you're about partakers of grace, and you're about the work of the gospel. You're financially supporting it. No other church did it after Macedonia, but you stepped up and have continued to do it. That's why he's joyful in jail. Verse 8. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is his oath. Uh, it's an unusual phrase. We don't think of the term oath. We don't think of a witness being an oath. I mean, the way, the way we lie in culture has so uh, watered down your word or a promise or an oath. It's, it's almost ridiculous. But when Cindy and I got married and we made a vow before God and man... Uh, that vow was, in our hope and prayer, never going to be broken. And as I've said many times, we love each other. There are days and times we don't like each other, but we love each other. The vow was made to be kept. doesn't mean people always keep them, but Paul is giving an oath language here when he says, God is my witness. We, we use the colloquial phrase, God only knows. God only knows. What, what do we what mean by that? We mean, the only one that really knows my heart and motive right now is God, because nobody can analyze what I'm really thinking and believing right now. You don't believe me, but God only knows. That's a coarse way of saying it, but that's essentially what Paul is saying. In verse 7, he made reference, I have you in my heart. And in verse 8, he says, but the affections of Jesus Christ. This isn't unintentional, because you got a hold on my heart. But God only knows the reason I love you is the love with which Christ gave me to love you. This is kind of deep for just a simple salutation, but I want you to stay with me. I want you to see why he's doing this. I've got this acardia affection. I've got this visceral affection when I think about you. But it's not just because I like you and love you and miss you. It's because we're on the same page theologically. We're on the page of the gospel. You're participating, put it in real black and white terms. You're financing the ministry and you're on track. So when I think of you and your investment, it makes me smile. That's what his argument is about. Only God knew how deeply Paul longed for the Philippians. And that's why he said, for God's my witness. I can't call God to be a testimony for me in a courtroom, but God knows my heart. He knows my head. So he's starting to put together this Semitic, this Judaistic, as well as this Gentile and Greek culture together in the way he develops this. J.A. Bingle wrote very well, it is not Paul who lives within Paul, but Jesus Christ, which is why Paul is not moved by the bowels of Paul, but by the bowels of Jesus Christ. This idea of affection that he's referring to literally means the bowels or the visceral part of man, and so Bengal chooses to use that. I love that phrase, He's Paul, but the bowels of Jesus Christ. It's Christ living in us that enables us to love people. Can't trump it up. Um, it's a common theme, and it's been more and more common in recent years, where people are having a hard time connecting. And they say, I don't have a community. I can't find a community. Um, Just last week, two couples came to me and said, we want to get into a small group. Great. Well, one lives here. Great. We sent them over here. Before the day was out, they were connected. That's one thing. We want to find a community. Other people will struggle and say, I can't find community. I've tried. And I can't find friends. I can't find a community. Uh, I understand this. I don't want to be unkind or discompassionate. Um, I will say sometimes it's... um, all about me. Sometimes uh, I don't like the group because it's not enough about me. And it's I mean my. We had a little fun last week talking about people that talk the entire time in a small group and never shut up and know, what do you do with this person? We've heard you talk every week. And another person never says a word. So in our group, as I had fun doing, is I would call on the people that didn't say anything. and It would startle them. And you know what? They always had something to say and they were right there and as a facilitator you learn things like you know let's hear from someone we haven't heard from tonight you might sit more than once that's a loving thing to do those of us who like to talk talk too much those of us like to listen need to talk once in a while that's the body right it takes time community's hard to find quote unquote we lived i was talking with christy we lived you know, one place a long time. So that church is your index. Well, back in our other church, you know, when people said it to me, I, I, we're friends, right? We're friends. We're friends. You don't have to be my friends, okay? When people said it to me, I don't really care. I don't really care. I've heard this for 40 years. Your church is better. Go back to your church. Don't tell me about your church. Now, I don't mean that. Well, I do. Um, <laughs> What what, what are we really saying when we say that? What we're saying is, I had such a great experience there. I grew up there, I knew those people. I was there 30 years. We were in churches in Texas and in Virginia for a long time. You know where our longest standing friendships are? Texas and Virginia and DC. Because that's where we spent a lot of time. And so it's natural. Learn a couple things, relationships are transitional. People move, they come and go. If you're in a small community, the same church all your life, that's fine. Most of the culture now is a transitional culture. And so things are, all of you who are coming from California, you're coming here to escape taxes and cost of living and you're coming here because there's no traffic and the cost of living and you're ruining it for us all. <laughs> and now there's more traffic and the cost of living has gone through the roof. Thank you very much. You're bringing your stuff with us. You know, so we're, we're, we have this idea though, you can't bring those relationships from your other place here. You know, what community doesn't depend upon the people you're finding, community depends upon you. Maturity is when you stop blaming your past, you own your present and you plan your future. That's called growing up. Stop blaming the past, own the present, plan your future. Okay, Lord, I really enjoyed this. I was a victim, I was abused, that's a horrible thing. When do you stop living based upon the definition of your past? Which is one of the reasons I get so, frustrated when people always ask me about my back. I live with chronic pain. I don't like being defined by a person who lives with chronic pain. Those of you who've gone through cancer, you you, you want people to care, but you don't like being defined as a cancer patient, right? Stop blaming your past. Own your present. I'm sorry if you were hurt. I don't mean to be cavalier or unkind. You must grow from being a victim Stop blaming your past, own your present. You don't know my husband, my father, my uncle, they abused me. I, I'm not trying to gloss over that. Please don't hear me being unkind or cavalier. When do you stop living based upon the way you were hurting? I got it. Today's what I got. Stop blaming the past, own the present. What can I do today? And then plan the future. How am I going to be different? One way, not the only way, is you find community. Really, you make community. See, so and I have been in so many small groups over the years, I can't even count. And you know what? Some of them were terrible, and some of them were wonderful. Now, those of you who host groups, and maybe those who go groups, you'll totally identify with me on this story. So here we are, and it's uh, Sunday afternoon. We're going to have a small group at 4.30, and you've been to church all morning. You went and ate too much at lunch, and you go, oh, we've got to go for a small group. Oh, God, hates hate small groups. I don't want to do this. I got to get everything. You know, we gotta run the store, we don't have enough food. And then you you have the refreshment list, you know. People bring different things. And some, you know, some bring the fatted calf, some bring up Kroger's potato chips. Not kidding. <laughs> Come on, guys, you know, this is eh. So anyway, it's so much fun. And you go, oh I've got to set the thing up, and Cindy and I are like, I don't want to dump I'm so tired. You get it set up, the first couple walks in the door, wow. You have the best time for the next two hours. It's like, this is so great. This is, I'm so glad we did this. We're so smart to have a small group. It's the best thing in the world. And then they don't leave. You get your pajamas on, you're flossing your teeth. You say, honey, it's time for these people to go home. You know. And then you clean the house up and put it back together. And the next week, oh, I got to get rid of a small group. And we overuse the word messy, but it's messy. Um, You're the one that makes the group. You can blame it on the leaders, blame it on that one couple that won't shut up. Blame it on the couple that brings crummy refreshments. Blame it on the one that has crazy theology. You can, I mean, we've all been there if you've been in small groups. This is not tit for tat. This is being a man or woman who's growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and loving the body of Christ a whole bunch of sinners." And Paul's in jail, and he's thinking about these men and women, and he says, I have you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. You're partakers of grace when I think of you. Um, The lesson is simple. Men and women, the infiltration of the gospel of Christ should inflame our love for the body of Christ. When you came to Christ, something otherworldly took place and your priorities and objectives are set aside for his priority and objectives. Your interests and hobbies and things, they're fine, they're good, but they have a place. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God. Your life is not your own, it's his. And in a Western mindset that is satiated on materialism and creature comforts, it's hard to fight against this. Um, Cindy and I, often pinch ourselves and we talk about Stonebridge and we say you know what Um, this has been the most fun I don't mean to some of you will not like that word it's been the most fun the most joy we've ever had in ministry because it's easy and I don't mean easy from a not hard but it's it's right you're coming because you want to hear the bible taught. you're coming because you need fellowship and discipleship and my hope and prayer is you learn to pray because I think that's been a failure epidemically in the American church. And we're trying to stay off all these crazy things that pull us, you know, lots of good things in life you can do. Go do them. Go do them. Two things last forever. When Bill Howard and I talked about this a few weeks ago, people and the word of God. It's really that simple. Paul tells us that he loves them even in jail. He might fight trial, he might uh, face a trial, he might face persecution, he might even feel martyrdom, but he looks at those men and women as his partners, and he says, I'm glad I'm here, and I think about you, and I'm so glad you're carrying on the gospel. For those of you who are leaders, that's a pretty big piece of theology to swallow down, that when you look across life, you go, those are the men and women that are still tracking